I'm Cassidy Hall. I'm Carl McCollman. I am Kevin Johnson, and we are Encountering Silence. Encountering Silence is made possible by listeners like you. Please visit www.patreon.com forward slash encountering silence to learn how you can be part of the circle and share in our efforts to bring silence into our all too noisy world. Award-winning poet, author, and journalist Judith Valente is the senior correspondent for WGLT Radio, a national public radio affiliate in central Illinois. She writes for U.S. Catholic and National Catholic Reporter and is a former staff writer for the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post. She also worked as an on-air correspondent for Chicago Public Radio and Religion and Ethics News Weekly on national PBS TV. She is a sought-after speaker and retreat leader on such subjects as living a more contemplative life, discovering inner wisdom through poetry, and finding meaning in your work. She is a lay associate of the Benedictine Monastery Mount St. Scholastica in Atchison, Kansas, which is the subject of her 2013 memoir, Atchison Blue, A Search for Silence, a Spiritual Home, and a Living Faith. Her most recent book is How to Live, What the Rule of St. Benedict Teaches Us About Happiness, Meaning, and Community. She and her husband have an alfalfa farm in central Illinois, where Judith is a member of the Grand Prairie Master Naturalists, a group that cares for and maintains the Illinois prairie. Judith Valente, welcome to Encountering Silence. Well, thank you for having me. I'm very honored. So... Very often, we'd like to start our conversations with our guests with a very basic question that we often use. So uh, we'd like to hear about your relationship with silence. You know, has there been a special uh, particular time in your life where silence really mattered to you? Uh, maybe a time when you had a meaningful encounter with silence when you were young or something. Um, and if, and would you mind sharing that story? I think my, my most meaningful encounter with silence came when I was an adult um, in midlife. It was a few years ago on my first visit to Mount St. Scholastica Monastery in Atchison, Kansas, the monastery I, that I wrote about and subsequently became an oblate of. And I went to Mount St. Scholastica to give a presentation, to give a workshop based on my first book, uh, 20 Poems to Nourish Your Soul. And I was supposed to be there talking about touching the sacred through poetry. The problem was that this particular visit came at the end of a, a hectic spate of travel where I was working my day job at that time with PBS TV and Chicago Public Radio during the week, and then doing these presentations on the weekend. So I arrived at the monastery on a Saturday night exhausted, mentally, physically, and spiritually. But the morning I was to give my workshop, I had an opportunity to sit in the chapel, this beautiful oak-lined chapel. And I was surrounded by these distinctive blue stained glass windows. And silence seemed to saturate that room. And I looked up at the stained glass window in front of me, and there was St. Benedict, the founder of Western monasticism with outstretched arms. 
and surrounding him were some words in Latin that I'll never forget. Omni tempore silencio debent studere. So I reached back into my high school Latin that I had studied and did a rough translation of omni tempore silencio debent studere. At all times, cultivate silence. And suddenly this paradox I had been living was staring me in the face. I had been running around the country talking and talking, trying to help other people live a more contemplative life. When what was missing in my own life were these moments of silence and solitude when I could simply listen and be. Mm. I needed those moments. I needed them drop by drop to um, have the inner reserves I needed to do the work I love, to do the speaking I love, but also to cultivate my interior life. Mm. So I think that's the one that stands out for me the most. Wow, that's that's beautiful, beautiful yeah. story. So maybe rewinding a little bit, what was your introduction to monastic life and contemplative life and uh, the Benedictines? Well, as I said, it came later in life. I educated in college by the Jesuits, and I had, a, I had a real fondness for Ignatian spirituality. And of course, Ignatian wanted his, his people to be contemplatives in action. Well, I knew, I understood action. You know, I was a journalist. I worked for the Washington Post. I worked for the Wall Street Journal, PBS. I, I didn't so much get the contemplative part mm -hmm. until I stepped inside that monastery mm -hmm. at Mount St. Scholastica. And a couple of things happened. It was it was the peacefulness and the quietude of the place, as I as I referenced, but also the warmth and the hospitality of the sisters. There was just something peaceful about the way that they they went through their days. And I remember thinking, whatever they have, I want mm -hmm. more of in my life. And and that kind of began my journey into. Studying the rule of St. Benedict, I soon learned that everything they do from the way they eat, pray, speak to one another comes from the rule. So I became a, a student of the rule. And I kept going back and back to the monastery to sort of get, you know, understand, breathe in, um, inhale, whatever it was that I had experienced that first time that was so powerful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, it's, I, I really do like that comment, too, about the Jesuits and the Benedictines. I'm Jesuit trained as well, and I've taught that for a long time. And what's really funny is I, I know that experience, what you say, it comes across very well, the action, but the Jesuits want to promote contemplation as well. It's the students seem to pick up the action and sometimes don't get yeah. the contemplative aspect. But Ignatius was, Ignatius originally wanted to be a hermit and wanted to be a monk himself, <laughs> And it's written, so uh, it's it's great that the Benedictines kind of like let you fill in that yeah. piece, you know. And, and interestingly enough, he went when you know when he had his great conversion, he went for his confession to a Benedictine monastery. Correct. So he, right, he yeah. had that connection with the Benedictines. Right. And I'll tell you later on in the interview another another funny connection that I had with the Benedictines that I didn't I didn't realize until just a few years ago. Tell that to you now. No. Or yeah, no time like the present. <laughs> well, you know, what I didn't know, what I didn't know at the outset was that, of course, St. Benedict lived and died at Monte Cassino in Cassino, Italy. Right. And that's where my paternal grandmother came from, you know, Italy. And I didn't put 
all of this together until very, you know, a few years ago. But she would have seen Monte Cassino, the Benedictine monastery, every day of her life. It dominates the landscape. And, um, you know, she was a grandmother that I've always regretted not getting to know well. Um, she was ill most of my childhood. She died when I was still rather young. And somehow I feel like I was coming back to my roots, back to my very genes by, by understanding, by delving into the Benedictine way of contemplative way of life. And that, you know, my grandmother paved that way for me, this grandmother who I, I was always yearning to have known. Mm. Mm. She would have been there during the war, right? No, they emigrated actually before the war. And the reason okay. right. that is I've tried to do research on her and a lot of her, the records were destroyed in the, in the war and, and had to be redone. I mean, she's, there are records of her there, but they were all redone after World War II. Because I know that, that Monte Cassino, the monastery, was very badly damaged. During right, the war. right. And I just think yes. that must have, for the, the folks who live there, that just must have been such a devastating experience. But, yes, and I'm sure she would have had cousins or, or, or distant relatives still there, but she had by that time been in the States quite a while. Judith, I, when you had that kind of opening up encounter with silence in Atchison, were you already an alfalfa farmer at that point, or was that pre-farm? Uh, it was pre-farm. Yeah, it was. Yeah, I think we got. I think we got the farm in two thousand nine, and that incident occurred in two thousand seven. Yeah. Okay. So, do you think there's a there's a connection there that moving into this kind of appreciation for Benedictine spirituality kind of tied in with your desire to have a more agricultural life? Yes, I think very much that it also inspired me to join the Master Naturalists, what we call the Master Naturalists here in Illinois, where we promote and take care of the prairie. And I think that, um, yeah, that whole that whole appreciation for creation and the, the, an appreciation for beauty, just the beauty of nature, that all was all this was intersecting at the same time in my life. It's interesting. I I'm happy to say I know an alfalfa farmer now. I, that is <laughs> that is a, a unique. You know, to be honest with you, I don't know anything about alfalfa f at all. The product, the the produce, the you know, I I don't even know what to even say about like what is what is alfalfa. Like I know the word, I don't know anything about it. Well, I'm very proud to say it is it is the grain. It is a grain that we raise. So that farmers who raise organic uh, beef, cattle for beef, yep. they in our area. They they uh, feed their organic uh, cows with our alfalfa, and it's all it's all done organically. The people who cultivate our land are apostolic Christians, and uh, so it's very interesting. And they, that's all they do. I mean, they don't use traditional pesticides. It's all organic, sustainable farming, which I'm. Very happy to say we make no money, but <laughs> but we are we 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 our, our our enrichment is in what we are doing for the environment and, yeah. and food chain. Okay, all right. Now that makes total sense. And now I'm a huge fan of alfalfa farmers. <laughs> yes, Be because and it's a very it's a very good crop. It's very it's very uh, sustaining and and renewable for the soil, and right. that's another reason to have it. 
Uh, we had corn in there and soybean one year, and the pesticides were just unbelievable that the farmers used. And I said, no, never again. Mm-hmm. And now we have um, these organic farmers who happen to be also very strong Christians. Mm. So, mm. Judith, I'm a lay Cistercian associated with a Trappist monastery in Georgia. And the monks there are actually the largest landowners in their county. And they've put easements on the entire property. They have about 2,800 acres, and it all has easements on it because sure. they're so they're so committed to protecting that land. And and it's it's in kind of the outer rim of the Atlanta suburbs, so it's very desirable land. They could sell it and make a lot of money to developers, but they just have this commitment. They see themselves as stewards of the land, and I'm hearing echoes of that as you talk about your commitment to organic farming. And so I'm curious if you have any thoughts about this relationship between kind of Benedictine spirituality, contemplation and silence, and then this deep sense of stewardship and of care for creation. Where do, where do you see the connecting points there? Well, I think any, any monastery that you visit, there's always so much natural beauty in the, in the surroundings. And I, I don't think that's by accident. I think that that's a statement about creation is sacred. You know, the land is sacred. And we we got so far away from that in our country. You know, I mean, we've had um, maybe 40, 50 years now of these environmental regulations trying to get back to some sanity. And you still have people right now trying to whittle away at that unbelievably. Uh, you know, there's an interesting there's an interesting question. What then can be done? that the uh, rich man asks Jesus in the, the Gospel of, of Luke. Well, I think you do what you can about what you see right in front of you. And we do what we can with our 10 acres. And I think Wendell Berry says the same sort of thing. You stick close to the land. You know, Remember, your, your roots are in the land. And is our 10 acres changing the world? No, but it's changing a little piece of the world. And I think you see that at monasteries, too, with their care of, uh, you know, the way that they they grow flowers and they grow vegetables. Judith, one thing that we often like to talk about with with writers and poets like yourself is the role that silence plays in your life as a writer. And I wonder if that also altered after you kind of were introduced to this more deeper contemplation in your life. Well, as Brother Paul once said, Contemplation is an abiding in silence. And I think that all poems begin in silence. And the poems themselves are a part of the overall silence that we experience. I mean, when you read a poem, you're often, you're reading it. You're often reading it by yourself. Sometimes you're reading it to a person, but more often than not, you're reading it by yourself. So that the act of reading the poem becomes an abiding in silence as well. Silence, Something I'd like to say, which maybe a lot of your your guests don't say, but silence has two sides to it. You know, I remember being a, a, a single woman for many, many years before I met my beautiful husband, living in cities where I had no other family members. And I, I had to move a lot, you know, as a journalist. And sometimes I didn't have yet, I had not yet in place a, a community or a community of friends. And silence could be very burdensome at those times in my life. I remember just, you know, coming home to my silent apartment so many nights. So 
silence also has to be balanced, I think, with a community. You know, too much, too much silence can be deafening. Mm -hmm. it, it can be stifling to the soul. And that's why I think we have to know when we need silence and when we need to reach out to the hands of a community. Judith, do you know the book, A Book of Silence by Sarah Maitland? I'm sorry to say I don't. Well, it's it's one of my favorite books, and it's it's just, it's a celebration of silence. But she talks in there, she has a chapter about people who do solo sailing around the, the globe, circumnavigating the globe, and how there is some evidence that, you know, they get out in the middle of the, of the Pacific Ocean where they haven't had any radio contact with people for days, and it's just, they're all by themselves, they're in the silence, and there's evidence of mental duress. There were, there were people who didn't make the trip, and they find the boat, and they find the journal, and they see that there was considerable kind of mental distress. So I think you're really onto something in this question of how do we embed silence in community? You know, and maybe that's why monasticism is so beautiful because that's what it's all about is, is embracing silence in a communal way. And yes, I, it, you, it, you look at the Trappists and, you know, they live in community in silence or the Kamal Demis monks. Uh, they still live in community though in silence. Yeah. Mm. You mentioned uh, Brother Paul Quinnen, who you co-authored a book with, and I'm wondering just has he been a companion for you, not only in terms of poetry, but also in terms of prayer and silence, and also you, you've mentioned a few others that may have companioned you as a writer, like Mary Oliver, maybe Thomas Merton, people like this. Well, I would say Brother Paul Quinnen is probably one of the most influential people that I've ever met in my life, mm -hmm. and he changed my life in small ways, but significant ways. I mean, the first time I ever climbed a tree at the age of 40 years old was with <laughs> Quinnen. Better late than never. <laughs> Better late than never. He, you know, he, he taught me to sometimes walk backwards and see what I see walking backwards. Mm -hmm. And of course, the biggest thing was he got me onto this thing of, of writing a three-line haiku, the three-line Japanese poem every day as part of my meditative practice, which I borrowed from his meditative practice. And that was the basis of our book, The Art of Pausing, Meditations for the Overworked and Overwhelmed. We, we wrote these haiku back to each other back and forth over three years, and then we wrote reflections to go with them so that busy people could have something to dip in and out of, a book that they could dip in and out of when they needed a pause. And, and a couple of other things, you know, I've had the opportunity to interview Brother Paul on radio, on TV, and, you know, a couple of things I always think about that he says. He said, the purpose of life is life. The purpose of life is just to live your life. I'm an over, I always say I, I suffer from a dual diagnosis, overachieverism and workaholism. <laughs> and um, Carl's laughing because he might be he might be the same way. The laugh of recognition. What's the yeah. next big thing I've got to do? What's you know what am I doing with my life? I got to do more, more, better, better. And, and brother Paul's, you know, you gotta you gotta shatter that. The purpose of life is life. Mm. Then another thing he said to me one time that I often quote to other people is contemplation is a big fat word for gratitude. Yep. Yeah. To cultivate 
to cultivate always that attitude of, of, of gratefulness and an attitude of attentiveness in your life that is so, so visible with him. You know, you could be with him, Cassidy, you've been with him, and you feel like you're the most important person in his life at that moment. Mm -hmm. And you're the most interesting person that he's ever met. And that is, is such a grace that he has been able to give to other people. Mm -hmm. So I just cherish that friendship with Brother Paul Quinnen. So you've, you've described now your initial story was in this monastery and feeling a place that it was saturated with silence. You have that place that you've mentioned for us, but is there a particular place and maybe it's because of, the, I'm thinking maybe the, your memoir or something, but is there a place where silence, just location itself, speaks silence to you or, or, or holds silence for you? A couple of things come to mind. You mentioned our alfalfa farm. Well, we have a cabin there that I go to. I've written a couple of my books there. And mm. it's very quiet in the cabin. Oh, that's lovely. But interestingly enough, as soon as I open the door... I'm I'm surrounded by sound. It's a, what, what do you call that? Surround sound type of thing? Is that what you call it? You know, of the cicadas are singing and the bullfrogs are having a spirited conversation and the wind is, you know, whistling through the, through the mm. branches. But it is a form of silence. Mm -hmm. It mm. is not silent, you know, in the sense of there's no sound, mm. but this, this sound that's a very healthy sound for me. And I could sit out there often on the porch and write in that kind of silence. So I, I liken it. It's the difference between, um, you know, the sugar you get when you eat a piece of fruit and the sugar you get when you drink a can of soda. Yeah. Um, it's the good, it's the good kind of silence, even though there's all this sound mm -hmm. happening from nature around me. Yeah. Other thing that I, you know, I work in a newsroom and it's, it's, it's often chaotic in there. And um, sometimes it's very rude in there. People's tempers flare. That's a newsroom. <laughs> and sometimes I can't, I can't find a, an empty conference room or an empty stairwell to escape to when things get really tense and noisy. Mm. So I go to a place in my mind and it is this, place in my backyard in my childhood home where there was a block of wood underneath a fig tree. Mm. And I would go there as a child to sit and daydream and write my little poems. And I could look out on the neighbors. This is, this is crazy, but I could look out on my neighbor's clotheslines and I would often make up sort of imagined stories related to the clothes hanging on the, on the clotheslines. But I can go to that place that little that little spot under the fig tree, I could go there in the middle of a really busy, noisy room, like the middle of a party going on, and I could literally feel like I'm floating above all the activity in that that's going on around me, all the noise that's going on around me, and literally I could just shut it all out in my mind. Mm. But you have to have that place to go to in your mind, and I think everyone has a place like that. If they thought about mm. Judith, do you have a silence hero? One question we, we like to ask people is dead or alive, famous or obscure. Um, is there someone that, that just embodies the richness of silence in your life or that has? 
Well, I am going to mention the sister at Mount St. Scholastica Monastery who invited me there to give that presentation on poetry. And then I just kept going back and back. And I dedicated my last book, um, How to Live, What the Rule of St. Benedict Teaches Us About Happiness, Meaning, and Community. I dedicated it to her. Mm. Sister Thomasita Holman, her brother, her brother worked with me at the Washington Post. He was the de deputy foreign editor. I was a lowly reporter on the on the Metro staff. That that was kind of the training ground for reporters at the Washington Post. And I remember her brother being just a very nice, gentle man. And Sister Thomasita as well, she has this quietness about, about her, as if she carries this pool of silence within her. Mm. She speaks. I haven't exactly mastered imitating her in this yet, as you as you probably have perceived. I still speak very quickly and you know, answer very quickly because I, you know, I grew up in the New York area and that's, a, <laughs> you know, that's a, that's, that happens. But Sister Tom C will, you will, you will ask her a question and there'll be a pause and a moment of silence and then she'll answer. And this is the way she eats and this is the way she speaks and this is the way she converses. And I always truly admire that that, as I say, that pool of silence that she seems to carry with her. And it has a calming effect on, on me, you know, because I'm a go-go kind of person usually. And it has a calming effect on the people around her. And I think that's a beautiful gift. Hmm. I'm kind of curious, I have to ask, where in New York did you grow up? I grew up actually in Bayonne, New Jersey, which is just on the other side of New York Bay. Gotcha. So I grew up looking out at the from the, the second floor of my house, the World Trade Center, which is no longer there, mm -hmm. and Liberty, and of course the Verrazano Narrows Bridge. So mm -hmm. we were we were very close to New York City, and <clears throat> you would go into New York City to eat and to to play and what have you, and began my lifelong uh, love affair with Broadway musicals. So mm. <laughs> owe a lot to growing up in the New York area. Lovely. Mm. A great place. Yeah. So go figure from there to Atchison, Kansas, right? <laughs> well, it yeah. sounds to me like you get the best of both worlds. Cause I, I'm, I love New York city. I really do, but I am a, I'm a quiet person and you can put me in the prairie and I'll be happy. So I can see both. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> Our conversation will return after this brief moment of silence. Please take a breath and be present in this 30 seconds of silence. I'd love to circle back to your comments about silence and community. You know, I think we live in a very noisy culture. You so many people, they constantly have the earbuds in their ear. They're always listening to something. They're always 
looking at a screen. You know, you walk into a restaurant and you see tables with six people and every one of them is looking at their cell phone. But I also think that in some ways we're a very lonely culture too. And that they're, you know, we're all looking at our cell phones, but it's like, then we're not talking to anybody else. And, and it seems that, you know, depression is epidemic in our, in our society that, you know, a sense of isolation seems to be, seems to be pervasive. So I'm curious, you know, if, if you were mentoring a young person today, what advice would you offer for finding community and for finding silence given the reality of life in the year 2018? What, what thoughts would you have? Well, I'm glad you brought up the issue of social media because I, I refer to it as a kind of white noise. Mm. It, is, it is a noise in our, in our lives. What I would say about that, you know, Joan Chittister has an interesting thing that she says about social media. Everyone's connected to everyone else and no one's connected to anybody. Right. Mm. I, re I really think that's a profound statement. Um, two things come to mind. I, you know, I used to take the bus when I worked for the Wall Street Journal in the Chicago, when I was in the Chicago Bureau and in the London Bureau, I used to take the bus and people would be, you know, maybe some people would be reading a book, but, but many people would be just looking out the window or they might engage in a conversation with someone who sat next to them. You don't see that anymore. People are watching a film on these iPads, you know, they're watching the, 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 the TV show they didn't, they missed um, or they're texting somebody. And it's, it's a false sort of connection because there is not the human touch. There is no human touch involved in that. And I mean, we're having a lovely conversation now via, via media, but it, it, it pales compared to me sitting, sitting with uh, Cassidy uh, on the porch of Thomas Merton's Hermitage and chatting with Cassidy, which was an un, you know, unforgettable day for us, yeah. her mm. first day of filming there. Mm. So I would say, you know, a lot of young people, they're not joiners. You know, they don't see the value in joining clubs. Um, one of the things I talk about in, in my book, How to Live, it's about community and about how community sustained me in those years when before I met my beautiful husband, you know, my, my Italian-American club. Mm. Those people were like my family. The people in my parish, if I had a, a career decision to make, they helped me through it. You know, they listened to me. Listening, another important Benedictine and monastic value. And, you know, I don't think we could have done that by texting or email or Skyping or social media. It just, it's just not the same. And so one thing I do tell, I, I do see a lot of uh, students because our NPR station is on a, on, a on a college campus of Illinois State University. You know, I say, don't, don't be afraid to join groups, you know? Uh, you need, you need that human contact. We truly do. And we can't get it. We can't get it from social media. So now that you're mentioning this, you've mentioned how active and busy you are, how you're in the newsroom, how you, you know, you're surrounded by noise in that place, and yet you can find that silent space in your mind. I wonder if we can flesh that out a little bit. How do you balance the contemplative and active part of your lives? Is there, like, what is your spiritual practice or, or like things that you do to hold on to the silence in this kind of busyness of what you're describing? Well, I, I, have, to, <clears throat> I have to take myself out of the busyness 
from time to time, as I mentioned, either by going to that place in my mind or just getting out of mm. the office, you know, finding an empty stairwell, finding an empty comp- conference room that I could that I can go to. And even in my house, you know, one of the great things about being married is I'm living in a house for the first time in my life because, you know, I always had a studio apartment or a one bedroom apartment as a single woman. <laughs> And I can escape even when, you know, things get a little hectic around here in my own home. I could go to my little corner of the attic or I could go to one of the bedrooms and and just sort of have my my silent and quiet time. I do try to start the day with some amount of silence. An interesting thing, uh, we get two newspapers here. Call me crazy, but I still get newspapers delivered. (laughs) And. You know, I used to just, you know, grab the newspapers, the New York Times and USA Today and jump back inside. And lately I've taken to just standing outside on the lawn for Mm. several minutes and just kind of standing there in silence, looking around. And you see some amazing sights. Uh, You know, one time I saw this this meteor go across the sky. Mm. I mean, just this shooting star. Not two, not three, just one. And I happened to be outside looking up at that very moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, other times I'll see a family of rabbits, you know, on the lawn, and I'll just watch them for a while. And it's pretty amazing because we don't, we live in a college town. We don't live in the middle of the prairie. I mean, my cabin is in the middle of the prairie, but not my my house. And so come to appreciate the, that that just those few moments outside of just standing there quietly as opposed to just jumping back in the house and cracking open the newspaper. Judith, if someone was new to your work, where would you tell them to begin? I mean, there's How to Live, there's The Art of Pausing with Brother Paul Quinnen, 20 Poems, Atchison Blue, Discovering Moons, um, and then Inventing an Alphabet, which you said was selected by Mary Oliver as one of the two co-winners, the 2004 Aldrich Poetry Prize. Is that right? Right. That's right. Yeah. Um, what year did you write that one, Inventing um, an Alphabet? Oh, Inventing an Alphabet goes back to 2005 because okay. uh, I remember that distinctly because I felt it was like a wedding present from Mary Oliver because I, I, I found out about the award just a couple of months before we were getting married. So oh. yeah, it was really great. And the call winner, she was having a baby. So uh, oh. both of us were in life life-changing, transforming uh, periods of our lives. It was That's really great. Nice. Yeah. But anyway, uh, you're kind of asking me to choose between my children, you know. Which, <laughs> yeah, yeah, which, exactly. Which one of my children is, is my favorite? What um, if you pick two? Okay. Well, I, I <laughs> tell people to start with the art of pausing because it is a book that I, I wrote for people like me who are really busy but want to take those contemplative pauses during the day. Mm. And you can dig in out of the art of pausing. And, you know, the subtitle is Meditations for the Overworked and Overwhelmed. And you get, you know, the voice of Brother Paul Quinnen in it. You get my voice. And then you get the voice of Michael Bever, who is a Disciples of Christ minister, another good friend of Brother Paul, who's also a, a Zen practitioner. Hmm. So he... Hmm things from a little different perspective. So, and I think a lot of people still comment on the 20 poems to nourish your soul, even though that book is, uh, let's see, 13 years in print, you know, 13 years old, it's still in print and people still buy it. 
because it's 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 poetry, but also then there's reflections written about the poems. And people love the fact that we don't try to tell you what the poem is about. Mm. <laughs> we, we talk about what this poem meant to us mm. and how each of these poems in that in that collection was a transformative moment for us. So you'll find Mary Oliver in that collection. You'll find Billy Collins, W.S. Merwin, a lot of wonderful modern poets. So, yeah. and I've I've had the opportunity to interview all of those people, except Mary Oliver, of course. But and and I think How to Live might be my my best book. You know, they always say your last book is your favorite book. Mm. How to Live might be my my best book because I feel. Cassidy, I feel like I poured everything I ever learned to this point in my life as a journalist, author, poet, wife, stepmother, and spiritual seeker. I feel like I poured everything into that book, mm. and and I'm happy with it. You And you're speaking our language because we're all a bunch of poetry geeks. Uh, we absolutely adore it, and it's almost every other episode. Okay, every episode we talk about poetry. And so, you know, you're, you're ticking off names of famous and we're like, yes, 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 <laughs> yes. Uh. Well, well, Carl has an interesting um, uh, phrase that he uses, anam karam, which of course is Celtic for soul friend. Mm. And long, you know, every time I speak on poetry, I always say, you know, poetry is not just for the English majors and the elites and the intellects. It's for everyone Poetry is truly a soul friend. Mm. Poems will come back to us when we need to hear their message. They will come back to us at different points in our lives. Poems that we've read, poems that we've heard. Mm. They, they are our soul friends. Well, you're, you're preaching to the converted here. I mean. <laughs> well, I was going to ask you who were your, your poetry heroes or companions, and it sounds like you've mentioned a few. Are there any others that that come to mind, particularly yes. in terms of silence, but even just in general. Yes, I would like to um, mention Marie Howe, who wrote uh, What the Living Do and um, Ordinary Time is her most recent book. Well, Marie was my first poetry mentor, and I probably wouldn't have had the courage to, to show my poems to anybody if it hadn't been for Marie. And Marie ended up being a really fine spiritual teacher as well. There is that soulful spiritual aspect to her poetry without it being religious mm -hmm. or without there being religiosity to it. Mm -hmm. But Marie taught me one of the most important spiritual messages uh, or, or lessons of my life. She said, the wounded have to become the healers. The wounded have to become the healers. When you go through a traumatic or very difficult experience, try to find one thing to praise in that whole awful experience. And you'll often see that Marie is writing about very complicated and difficult subjects, but there's always that element of praise, that something life-affirming that comes out of that, that poem. And, and I think her, the title poem of her next to the last collection, What the Living Do, is a beautiful example of that. So, Judith, do you happen to have a poem that you would like to read for us, uh, one of your own, perhaps, that you could share with our listeners? Well, it's very, very kind of you to ask. I, um, I opened uh, my, my 
my latest collection of poems, and I just happened to open to a, a poem that has silence in the in the first sentence. So I will I'll read that. It's a poem that I wrote shortly after my marriage, and we were kind of settling into this this kind of loving domesticity at that time, and I think the poem reflects that. But at the same time, uh, uh, there were some discoveries in uh, discoveries by astronomers of new moons around Jupiter. Mm. So that works its way into the poem. There's a lot of different leaps in the poem. Mm. And it's the title poem of my most recent collection, Discovering Moons. What happens, happens in silence. We wake in a room your daughter painted sunrise red. Daylight drips through linen curtains, feeds us intravenously. Like Galileo with his scope unearthing Jupiter's moons, we lie on our backs on the white clay of our bed, chart the constellations of ceiling. That Y-pronged crack you call a ballerina on plant, her arms flung above her, about to slide into an arabesque, I say is Christ strung upon his cross, moments after earth shuddered, temple curtain tore apart. On a shelf in the living room, a brown box contains all that remains of your mother, every pigment of bone, muscle, scylla, cartilage. One day we will spread this fine matter across the mining hills of Edwardsville, the coast of Ventura, the prairie outside of Normal. In soundless desert, astronomers discover new moons, 45 in the last six months around Jupiter alone. There is so much I want to say to you in a language without words. We orbit each other like the moons circling Jupiter in unconjugated space. Europa, Callisto, Leda, Ganymede, Thebe. Wow. And here's another one that, that also speaks to silence. And, you know, we had that solar eclipse a year ago in August. Mm -hmm and a lunar eclipse, a major lunar eclipse this, this past summer. Um, this is about a lunar eclipse I watched a couple of years ago from my balcony when I was still living in Chicago. And it was amazing how quiet the city of Chicago got. And my, my apartment is, was downtown Chicago. As, you know, millions of pairs of eyes were watching this one thing all, all at the same time and being silent. So this is what this poem tried to capture. And I imagine the moon as this big eye with its lid slowly drooping lower. Lunar eclipse, amber occluded eye, more iris now than pupil, whose dark lashed lid droops slowly downward, succumbs to night's hypnosis. Earth falls from memory a bead lost in cobalt light. The Buddha, it is said, had a thousand eyes to watch the world with compassion. Tonight, a million pairs of eyes fix 
on the one dreaming eye, suspended beyond earth's sorrowful drumbeat, the humming of the sun, Saturn to the west, Regulus to the east, a universe at peace, sun, moon, planet aligned, like patches of a quilt, as if peace were a cloth we could cuff in our hands, rub between our fingers, and the only language that matters, silence. I love well, how, how celestial both of those poems are. Yeah, wonderful. Yeah, we, well, that, yeah. Living out on the prairie, you kind of get interested, too, in, in the sky and what's happening. So, well, thank you. I'm, I'm a little shy about my poetry, so thank you for, for um, being so kind. I want to thank you. It was, it, this has been so lovely. And to hear, you know, your conversation about how you find that balance in being a writer who's deeply creative and poetic uh, and yet tapping the silence while you're hustling around and, and being so busy. It's really kind of, it's, it's, it's actually very good to hear because I, I, you know, talk about silence heroes. We need to see modeled for us that it's possible to be an active contemplative. And so maybe you feel like, you know, you got the active part and you didn't understand what the Jesuits are doing. I think the Jesuits would be very pleased with where you've ended because you seem to be quite an active contemplative and it's, it's lovely to see and to interact with somebody like you. So thank you. Thank you. I feel the same way about Carl and Cassidy and you all. Well, thank you. And, and I just also need to say this. I think you might be the first professional journalist that we've had on the podcast. Mm -hmm. I don't know if we've had any others. And so I just want to say how much I value the free press that we live in a time, obviously, when the free press is being attacked. And so thank you for what you do. Thank you. I, 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 think, I think a free country requires a free press. And so, you know, I, journalists are definitely among my heroes. So thank just, you. Thank just a little you. Yeah. Right there. Yeah. As you can see, they, they die for the truth uh, every yeah. day. Like, oh, we, yeah. like we just saw. Yeah. Judith, I, yeah, I want to thank you. Just um, I, I've always considered journalists to be the truth tellers and it's so beautiful that you're both doing that in your life and your personal writing, you know, that you're sharing with the world, but as well as your journalistic life and just sharing the truth is so powerful and so important. And you're sharing that from your inner world also. Yeah. And thank you so much for that. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Encountering Silence podcast. If you enjoy our ongoing conversation about the beauty of silence and its meaning in our lives, please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or at our website, www.encounteringsilence.com. You can subscribe to our email list at our website. Connect with us on social media, on Twitter at Silence Podcast, or on Facebook at Encountering Silence. And please visit www.patreon.com forward slash encountering silence to become a patron of this podcast. Your financial support will allow us to continue creating new episodes and spreading the message of how vital silence is to our social, spiritual, and physical well-being.